you will, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 44. And we will read the entire chapter again, verses 1 through 34. And actually this chapter, as I read through it, is going to provide a summary of the previous two chapters. So I won't really lead into it much. Uh, Judah will kind of tell us uh, what has come before this. And I'll fill in a few blanks as we go along. But I do want to review just a couple of things that we've learned from the last couple of chapters because uh, we'll build on that and, and actually take it into next week as well. Back in chapter 42, uh, this was the, uh, the brothers, uh, Jacob's, or I should say Joseph's brothers, who uh, Joseph is now second in charge in Egypt. Um, he, they come to visit him. They don't know who he is. Um, there's been a famine, they're coming for food, and in that chapter, God made these brothers, there were ten of them, uh, face their sin, basically. Their conscience uh, kept uh, pricking them, because God kept putting things in front of them that reminded them of, of their sin, and, and we saw that need to repent, and that need to change, and, and how God will put us in those places that we can do that, that we can uh, see what we've done wrong and, and deal with it in, in repentance. And then in chapter 43, uh, it was the second trip. They ate all the food from the first trip. They have to go back. The famine is still very bad. And we saw in chapter 43 their transformation and how the brothers now are thinking of others. They were very selfish and jealous before this, but now they're thinking of others. They're very uh, contrite. They're taking personal responsibility for things. And in that, we saw God's transforming grace, that he doesn't leave us stuck in our sin, but that uh, when we confess our sin and repent our sin, God can transform us that we may be uh, more effective uh, for him. And so uh, we'll pick up the story here. They're about to leave Egypt. This is the, the morning after uh, a big uh, feast that they had with Joseph. And they're getting ready to leave. And as we start the chapter, you'll notice it says he right away, then he, and that is Joseph. And uh, so we will uh, continue on with the story, Genesis chapter 44, beginning at verse 1. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the man's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain, and he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. 
Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let not your anger burn against your servants, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. 
and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. The holy and inerrant word of God. I had mentioned to Patty after Sunday school that I uh, fear for her sanity. Not uh, for any reason other than that she was talking about the Apollo astronauts, Apollo 8 and Apollo 10. And, and I said, well, I was going to talk about Apollo astronauts. And so she's starting to think like me, and that's never a good thing. Um, but I'll pick up on, on where Patty started this morning in Sunday school. And I'm going to jump ahead to Apollo 13. And I was thinking about it this week because NASA released a video, actually, of, of the moon from the point of view of, of the astronauts on Apollo 13. And many of you know that I'm intrigued by outer space and astronauts and, and all of that. And, and Apollo 13 was made very famous by a movie uh, back in 1995, 25 years ago almost, if you can believe that. Um, uh, it was supposed to be the third moon landing. Uh, it launched on April 11th, 1970. But on the evening of April 13th, when the crew was some 200,000 miles away from Earth and closing in on the moon, a warning light appeared at ground control. And it was a low-pressure warning signal. There was a hydrogen tank um, that, that needed some attention. Now, it can be a real problem, or it might have just been a, a minor problem about how the gas had settled, and, and usually it's the minor problem, and all that has to happen is you flip a switch, and, and the gas gets flamed a little bit, it warms up, and gets, gets uh, uh, moved around, and then it resettles in the right way. And, and so that's what they thought it was, and astronaut Jack, uh, Jack Swigert, uh, he flipped the switch, just a routine procedure. But just a moment after he flips the switch, the entire spacecraft uh, starts to shudder. And alarm lights go off in the spacecraft, and alarm lights and warning bells go off at, at ground control, and they have a major issue on their hand as, as the oxygen pressure is falling, and, and the power basically disappears from the spacecraft, and, and Swigert uh, famously uttered those words, Houston, we've had a problem. Now, by the way, if you saw the movie, they changed that line a little bit. They said, Houston, we have a problem, which uh, they took a little creative license. And also, if you saw the movie, uh, they have Tom Hanks saying that line, uh, but he's playing Jim Lovell, and, and Lovell didn't say that, actually. It was Swigert, so Kevin Bacon should have said the line. <laughs> but when you're paying Tom Hanks millions of dollars... He's a big Hollywood star. You give him the dramatic line, even if it's not quite right. But Swigert let Houston know what Houston already knew. Houston, we've had a problem. And in an instant, everything changed. The blast-off had been so picture-perfect, just like the missions before that had successfully landed on the moon. Everything was going so well. And all of a sudden, 
it falls apart on them. And they don't know if they're going to make it back. In fact, for a long time, it looked as though the chances were that they weren't going to make it back. It took some very creative uh, ingenuity and engineering uh, for them to make it back to Earth. But it didn't look good for a long time. When we look at this passage, we can see that's how the brothers must have felt as they're on this mission that looks to be going so well. They've got grain that they're coming back with and they've got their brother who had been kept in prison until they came and got him. They needed to bring Benjamin with and, and they have him and they're going back and Benjamin is there and he's really important because Jacob, their father, has to have Benjamin back home. They've had this great meal and have been shown great favor from Joseph and they're on their way back but... Something happens. And Joseph actually is the one that instigates it. He sets them up. We see that in verses 1 and 2. Joseph uh, sets them up by putting money, the money that they had paid for the food, back in their bags. And, and also, uh, he puts his silver cup in Benjamin's sack. And it's very similar to what has happened back in, in Genesis 42. At that point, uh, the boys left and, and the steward had put the money in their sacks that time and, and it terrified the boys thinking, what is God doing to us? Because uh, they thought something had happened and, and this was going to be horrible. And, and now that same thing is happening, but, but Joseph's gone one more. He's put this, this cup in with, with Benjamin now. And whenever I go through a story like this, I like to think what, what they might be thinking along the way. And I, I think of this steward. You know, what's, what's this steward thinking? Because here he is putting this money in this, this silver bowl in Benjamin's sack, and, and he's done this before to the brothers, and he's probably thinking, why, why is Joseph messing with these guys so much? He doesn't really know the relationship yet. He's, he's really messing with these guys. Something's going on, but uh, they leave, and they've got this money and, and, and grain and as much as they can carry in verse 1. It's, the impression is that uh, it's more than they would have bought if they'd have actually kept the money. It's, it's, it's as much as they can carry. Great successful mission and everything seems to be going well and they leave uh, early in the morning and we see in verses 3 through 13 uh, it starts out everything is, is great but Joseph uh, tells the steward uh, what to say when he catches them. In verse 4 he tells them uh, to make this accusation of stealing uh, this, this cup and so in verse 6 we see that the steward overtakes them and <coughs> and uh, makes this accusation. What have you done? You've stolen this cup. Now, if this accusation is true, th this, is, this is a pretty big thing. Uh, it, it not only shows uh, disrespect, but uh, this is great disdain even. I mean, here's Joseph who had treated them so well, given them this big meal and loaded them with as much food as they can carry, and then they would steal from him? I mean, this, this is quite a charge that's brought up against them. Quite an accusation. 
And the steward in making this accusation is almost asking, did you really think you were going to get away with this? He uses this cup. He drinks from this cup. And he, he practices divination. And, and what is divination? Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, we see it in verse 5. And, and again, Joseph mentions it in verse 15. And it's, a, it's an ancient Near Eastern thing. And, and the Egyptian magicians would have done it. And basically, this is a real simple explanation. They would uh, take a cup and put some oil and some water in there and mix it up. And then from that... Uh, try to tell the future. Or maybe uh, the way it swirled around, there would be a, uh, it would reveal something. Now the question is, did Joseph actually do this? And the answer is almost certainly not. He probably didn't do this. Um, in fact, if you remember back in, in Genesis 41, when Pharaoh had his dreams, and he brought the magicians in to interpret the dreams, and they were most likely using divination and couldn't come up with anything, Joseph told Pharaoh, God will give the answer. All of our interpretation will come from God. So Joseph doesn't believe in divination, but it's all part of the ruse. It's something an Egyptian official would believe in, and this is all part of the ruse. And so uh, the, the steward makes this charge, and the boys have this, uh, this, this strong protestation or, or proclamation of innocence, if you want to put it that way, in verses uh, uh, 7 through 9. And they're, they're saying, we would never do this. None of us would ever do this. And they're right. They're, they're transformed now. They're doing the right thing. They say, we would never do this. And they're so confident in this. In verse 9, they say, the one who did it should die. He should die. We're so confident. This, no way. And, and they mentioned the money the last time. Remember that money that ended up in our sacks and we brought that back? You would think at that point, one of the brothers might think, wait a minute. You know... That money ended up really mysteriously in our bags last time. Maybe we shouldn't be quite so confident this time. Who knows what's in these bags now? But they didn't think of that. They were sure that this couldn't happen. And so we come to that tense scene in, in verses uh, 11 and 12 as they quickly lower their bags. They're so sure of themselves that they just, they, let's do it right now. They open up sacks and, and you're thinking uh, probably the money was found first in, in the first sack as they're working from the oldest to the youngest. And, and maybe a couple of them at that time started thinking, uh-oh, here we go again. Something's going on here. And, and now we know, but they don't know as they're working down to the youngest and they get to Benjamin's sack and there it is. There it is. There's that cup. If they had had a two-way radio and could have radioed back home, they would have said, Canaan, we've had a problem. We might not make it back. And the one least likely to get back is Benjamin. But I don't think any of us are going to make, make it back. Great success has turned into abject failure. And the brothers respond rightfully 
this time. In verse 13, they, they tear their clothes. You know, once you think about it, if this had happened 22 years earlier and Joseph had been the one caught with the cup, they would have been joyful. Hey, look at this! Look what happened! Joseph got busted! And he's going to Egypt and we're going to go home and tell Dad what a louse this guy is. But now they tear their clothes and they're not going to abandon their brother this time. They know he's innocent. They really do. They have no way to demonstrate it, but they're going to go with him anyhow. And so they go back to Egypt. And Joseph is there. It's probably still in the morning. We see this in verses 14 and 15. And, and he brings up that divination thing again. Did, didn't you know that a guy like me, I, I can do divination and and basically, when he brings it up again, what, what he's trying to say is, don't you know that I'd have found out? The gods would have told me somehow. He's, it's all part of the ruse again, that don't try to hide anything from me. I know what you're up to, guys. And Judah steps to the forefront. In, in, in verse 16, he steps up, and he, he gives this long speech. It's interrupted just briefly by Joseph, but he does give this, uh, this great, uh, wonderful uh, speech. Now, we have to remember with Judah a couple of things, though. First of all, it was Judah's idea to sell Joseph into slavery. Now, the brothers wanted to kill him, but Judah was the one that said, look, why should we kill him when we can make some money off this guy? It was Judah who came up with the idea to sell Joseph into slavery. But that was 22 years ago. Here, when Benjamin is in danger, he gives this speech that is, uh, when you look at, at biblical scholars and, and writing about what Judah says, they, they just can't, uh, they can't say enough good about it, the, the beauty of it. Uh, one writes, it's a speech of singular pathos and beauty. Another writes, the finest specimen of dignified and persuasive eloquence in the Old Testament. Another calls it remarkable in its humility, in its forthrightness, and in its sensitivity. It's just a beautiful, beautiful speech that Judah gives. And he starts by saying, he knows they're guilty. Which is weird when you think about it. Because Judah, he actually knows that Benjamin is innocent of what he's being accused of. He knows Benjamin didn't really take that cup. He doesn't know how it ended up there, but Benjamin didn't take it. He knows, and, and he never incriminates Benjamin in his plea. We know that the boys are innocent in this. And here's the thing we have to remember Joseph also knows that the boys are innocent in this. They haven't taken the cup. Joseph knows that. But yet Judah says, God has found out our guilt. And Joseph knows exactly what they're talking about. They've revealed their heart to him. A bystander would think, oh, they've just confessed to stealing a cup. But Joseph knows now. These are some boys that have really been transformed. And they know they're guilty before God for these other sins. Sins against him 
sins that he saw them commit when they killed a whole bunch of innocent people and other sins that he saw. And he, he knows uh, what their heart is saying. And he gives them one last chance to leave. You notice that in verse 17. One last chance to leave. He said, no, I'm going to keep Benjamin. You guys go back to your father. And, and if you notice what Joseph has done here brilliantly, he has put them as close to the same situation as he possibly can as it was 22 years ago when they sold him into slavery. I'll keep this one. You all go back to your father and tell, tell him what happened. It's as close as he can replicate to what has happened. And, and he gets them there again in that very same position. You know, uh, sometimes it's unnerving how God will put us in the same situation. And we have to see what we're going to do. And for the boys, it, this, this, is, this is the time where, where their recognition of, of sin and their transformation by God's grace, this is where this meets now. What are they going to do? Here's their last chance. And they have every right to up and leave if they wanted. But they don't. And Judah continues with his plea then. And in verses 18 through 29, he basically gives a summary of their first visit. But notice how tactful he is in this. He doesn't mention a lot of the aspects that might annoy Joseph. You know, he doesn't mention that Joseph accused them of being spies. He's not going to bring that up. Nor is he going to mention that uh, Joseph actually put them in prison for three days or that he held on to Simeon. Uh, he doesn't mention any of that. In fact, he softens a lot of, of his, his language. Uh, Joseph's language, I just say. Judah softens what Joseph had said. He was quite harsh with them the first time, but he kind of softens that up a little bit. He mentions this idea that, that you know, he, he thinks Joseph is dead. Uh, and that was part of the, the lie that they had told their father. Did they believe the lie, or, or what happened there? Are they, are they just assuming that he died? And, and you notice he talks about the boy. This, this is the boy that, that our father loves, along with his brother who's no longer here, and how he almost delegitimizes himself. This is the boy of his wife. I am a son of his other wife that he didn't like. It's like he delegitimizes himself and, and lowers himself. And so he continues on, and, and uh, Joseph is learning some things in this. He, he learns why it took him a while to come back. He learns about Jacob's response when, when uh, the brothers told him that he had died, how he tore his clothes. And then uh, Judah continues with his plea and mentions the, uh, the consequences in verses 30 through 32. If the, he doesn't come back with Benjamin, Jacob's going to die. If I don't come back with him, this will kill our father. And so in verses 33 and 34, Judah offers himself. And he says basically, let me remain instead of the boy. Let the boy go back with his brothers to our father. I'll stay. Let him go. Please let him go. Let him go with his brothers. 
Let him go back to our Father. Notice this. He doesn't ask for mercy. This is interesting to me. He's not asking for mercy. In a way, when you read between the lines, what he's asking for is justice. I know justice has to be served. The crime here that we know we're innocent of, we can't prove our innocence though, so justice is going to have to be served, and I will serve it. I will serve it for him. Let him go with the brothers. Let him go back to our father. And this is made all the more poignant when we remember Judah's offspring. And generations later, it's going to lead to Jesus, who comes and does in a much grander way what Judah is doing here. In fact, the, the prophet Isaiah uh, Rights of the coming Messiah in, in Isaiah 53. And, and they're words that as I start reading them, you'll almost know what they are before they come out of my mouth. Very famous passage. But just notice the, the language of, of someone suffering for someone else as Isaiah writes of, of the coming Christ. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When Jesus came into the world, he came in knowing that justice would be served. There would be judgments on our sin. He never denied that. But rather, he came into the world to say, let me take that punishment instead of them. Let me be tortured on that cross that they can go. Let me die that they can live. And may we never, ever take God's mercy for granted. You know, sometimes I run across people and they play so loose with mercy and forgiveness. And, and sometimes it seems that the shallowness of someone's faith or maybe their outright unbelief is revealed by their depth of conviction that somehow mercy is deserved. I deserve to be forgiven. May we never think that way, but remember that mercy comes from God. And we have it because our Savior came and said, I will take their place. I will will serve their punishment. And that was part of our responsive reading. If you look back at that, some of the things, the righteous for the unrighteous. He himself bore our sins. He was delivered up for our trespasses. May we never take that for granted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we have a Savior who is willing to suffer 
horribly for our sins. Help us to live in great thankfulness for that sacrifice. Help us to show mercy in our lives, knowing that we are saved 100% by your grace and your mercy. We thank you for that. And we ask that we can live boldly and speak that truth in this world that others will understand the sacrifice that was made and that they can have forgiveness in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. And now, if you will turn to hymn 372, we'll stand and sing the first two verses, Living for Jesus. Jesus.